0: Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 12. We've been preaching through this entire book. We're doing a series on it. And two weeks ago, we were in this same chapter, and we looked at this miraculous escape of Peter. Like, he's arrested, we think he's going to die, but God intervenes and delivers Peter, and it's this beautiful story. And I preached a sermon entitled, Sleeping in Sovereign Hands. This week, we're back in this same chapter, and we're being honest about the death that occurs in this chapter. We're looking at it at a different angle, and we're thinking about dying in sovereign hands. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses from Acts chapter 12, and then the last paragraph, and we'll begin together. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. At about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Look ahead to verse 18. This is after Peter is arrested, he's delivered, he meets with those who are praying for him. Now it's the next morning. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon his throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Let's pray together. Lord God, would you hold us in those same sovereign hands. Whether we talk about sleeping in sovereign hands and not being anxious, or we talk about dying in sovereign hands and not being anxious, they're still your hands, and they are still sovereign, and I pray you would hold us even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we're going to talk about the topic of death, a very heavy topic. and I'm reading two books right now that have had a lot of influence on the way I'm thinking and speaking about this. One is John Piper's book, Providence. I don't know if any of you bought it and put it on your bedside table to impress your friends. It's like a thousand-page book on the providence of God. That's a wonderful, wonderful book. I'm also reading Matthew McCullough's very slim book, Remember Death, which is a meditation on death. And so I say those two books because they're in the background of my thinking about this and, and really moving me to take a closer look in this passage at that topic. You know, it's interesting because when it comes to death, we know that barring Jesus' return, every single person in this room, every single person, believer and unbeliever alike, we will die. None of us can escape death. And yet, each of us are in very different places relating to death. Even as we talk about this topic, it hits each of us differently because for some of us, this is extremely personal. We have just lost a loved one, and we feel the weight of death very strongly. For others of us, we are grieving with those who are ourselves or a friend or family member who has a sickness that might actually lead to death, and this is very real to us. There's others of us that are simply anxious about death. we're healthy and our kids are healthy, but we can't help but thinking and fearing death itself and when it's going to come and if it'll take my spouse or my kids. And we're anxious about death and others of us, we just don't really think about death at all. So there's no one-size-fits-all sermon about death Our text is just one biblical strand of a very deep, very mysterious conversation on something that touches every breathing person in this room. In Acts chapter 12, there's a lot of death. We open the chapter with James dying by the sword, and then the sentries who were guarding Peter, They are examined and they're put to death. We end the chapter with Herod dying. Peter escapes death, but he only does that momentarily until he too will die. Which means there are at least six people in our passage who woke up this morning thinking they would live to see the end of the day, and they died. And one person woke up thinking he was bound to die, and he actually lived. How do we even begin to account for the twists and turns of life and death? How death visits some so early or so suddenly or so tragically and others are spared these early machinations of death only to inevitably succumb to death later on. Barring Jesus' return, which may happen today, Death will visit every breathing person in this room, and probably on a day, and in a place, and at a time that we least expect. That happened in Acts chapter 12, that will happen to us today. And if we're left to our anxious thoughts about death, and wondering about death, and worrying about death, that's a very dark place indeed, But Scripture has beautiful truth to speak to us if we will have ears to listen. I'm going to make a thesis for this sermon. And actually, we're going to look at this in two parts, one today and one in two weeks. And the thesis I have comes from Acts chapter 12. And it comes from the book of Acts, and it comes from the scope of Scripture itself. And when I say this thesis, it's going to sound appalling at first, but it is good news for God's people behind its veil of mystery. My thesis is this. God ordains every death. God ordains every death. Death does not come to us by chance, by chaos, by the random whims of an impersonal universe. God holds the time and the place and the means of every single death in his hand. Now, we have a statement of faith that we use that is drawn from Scripture, and it's a theological statement that can help us articulate these things. The Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says it this way, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, and here it is, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Now this is a sermon, it's not a lecture on providence or a lecture on death, but I want you to hear these things involved in that statement of faith reflected in Scripture. We are saying that God is sovereign over creation, He ordains what comes to pass, and yet He Himself does not sin and cannot sin, And he himself does not offer any violence to uh, creatures who are responsible for their actions. You and me are responsible for the choices that we make. So you're going to hear a 20-minute sermon about this. But if in any way these three things feel like they're falling apart, then come to me and let's talk about it. God is sovereign. God cannot and does not sin. Humans are absolutely responsible for the decisions that they make. That's a tension, that's a mystery. All three of those things are profoundly here in Scripture. God ordains every death. Now there's a verse in the Bible that I kind of quote often and jokingly. It's Job 121, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I kind of say that in weird situations like, you know, I'm playing Connect Four with my kids and I'm on a winning streak and then all of a sudden my eight-year-old beats me and it's like, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, you know? And I mean that like he did. And I'll pour a cup of iced coffee this afternoon and I'll get the cream in it and I'm ready to sit down with a book and I knock it over and there it goes and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And I'm joking, but I'm also serious about it. I mean, that is God in all situations. But of course when Job said it, he said it in the valley of the shadow of death. If you know the book of Job and the story of Job, Satan is scheming and asks permission to do something and through that scheme, a a wind comes and it strikes the house in which Job's ten grown children are together feasting and it falls over on them and they're gathered there and they're all killed in that one single moment. Satan is real. And he has real schemes, but he does not hold ultimate power over life and death. The wind that swept, that knocked down the house, that's real. Natural causes are real. Wind is fierce, but wind itself does not have ultimate control or power over life and death. When Job buries 10 children, he's not being cute, he's not being glib. He's not being naive. He is densely, soberly, robustly theological when he says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. It was the Lord who gave me these children and it is the Lord, not Satan, not natural causes, not being in the wrong place at the wrong time, not why do bad things happen to good people. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when Job says that, he agrees with what God has said about himself in Deuteronomy 32, 39. I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. Now James, the one who writes the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, not this James who is killed early in our passage, he reminds us not to presume on our lives. He says, don't go around telling people what you're going to do tomorrow and a year from now. Instead, he says, James 4.15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Don't say, well, I'm going to be alive tomorrow, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and these are my plans. He says, don't presume on your life. Say, think, believe. If the Lord wills, I will be alive tomorrow. Old Testament, New Testament agree, God ordains every death. Now there's a lot more to say here, but we need to dig into our passage. And over these two Sundays, this Sunday and two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the deaths that are here. Herod's death, and then Peter's momentary deliverance, which will ultimately end in death, and then James's death. So today we're only talking about Herod's death, and God is approaching each death differently. So today you hear the death that comes in judgment on Herod, and don't connect that in your mind to the loss of a loved one. But let's talk about Herod. And when we say the name Herod, we're typically thinking around Christmas time about Herod who visits with the wise men and then he orders for the babies in Bethlehem to be killed. That's not this Herod, that's Herod the Great. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. And he begins to persecute the church. We hear about this early in the chapter. And then he reappears at the end of the chapter in all his earthly glory. And what's cool about this scene is It's actually testified in another historic reference. So if we didn't have the Bible... We could find in the historian Josephus, who lived at this time, his book, The Antiquities, he actually tells the story of Herod Agrippa. So you have corroborating evidence with the Bible that there was Herod Agrippa, that he came at this time, that he gave this speech, and that he died. Josephus is not a believer. He's not supporting the Bible. He's speaking something that historically happened, and he actually gives us some additional details than what we have in the biblical text. Herod, he appears before these people in Tyre and Sidon. And Josephus says he has this special robe that he's wearing. It's this elegant robe, and it's woven with strands of silver so that when he appears to the people, it actually appears very glorious. He's standing in front of them, and when the sun rises upon him, his robe is shining, and it's glittering, and he looks incredible. And the people who are desperate for his goodwill begin to praise him, worship him, and say, this is not a man, this is a God. Now, Herod, in that moment, he has two decisions in front of him. He can deny the worship of others, like Peter just did a couple of chapters ago when Cornelius tried to worship him, and he said, don't worship me, I'm not God, I'm just a messenger. Or he could receive the people's worship, and in this moment, Herod couldn't resist and he receives the worship, the idolatrous worship of the people. And verse 23 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now Josephus adds a few more details and tells us that Herod actually crumpled on his throne in intense agony and he was carried away by his attendants and five days later he died this agonizing death and he was 54 years old. Now that's terrifying. It's terrifying to watch God break into our world in this way and enact this kind of penalty and praise God he does not do this often and he does not treat us at our, as our sins deserve and any one of us before we came to Christ could fall under this judgment but if you're here alive breathing today whether you're a believer who trusts in Jesus or an unbeliever that is God's grace to spare you. He does it sparingly in the Bible and I presume he does it sparingly today. God ordained Herod's death, and I think between Herod and James two weeks later, it's easier to see Herod's as ordained by God, because scripture tells us, an angel of the Lord struck him down. But without getting too graphic, it's a little more complicated than that. Think with me a little deeper about how this death came about in this way. We get details about this death. This wasn't a magic trick to kill Herod. Something actually happened that took his life. And medical folks, when they've weighed into this passage, there's not a ton of details here, but they guess that this might have been a perforated appendix or a ruptured cyst, all combined, in Herod's case, with intestinal roundworms. Now I'm sorry to speak about that if you want to cover your ears for the next few lines you can, but roundworms are a real thing an intestinal parasite. They can grow over a foot long, they can clog your intestines and they can create an agonizing death. Do not google this, but it is there and this is a real thing. This actually can happen. Now I make this graphic observation for one reason, when we say that God is sovereign, and when we say from Ephesians that all things work together for the counsel of his will, and when we say this morning that he holds every death, we don't mean that superficially or mystically or magically. We mean that in this actual time, space, world in which we dwell. We mean that any time from two months to two years before these fateful events on this blasphemous day, Herod Agrippa, wherever he was at that time, he picked up a piece of contaminated food. Now, Herod's been eating food for 50 years. He's had a lot of food to choose from, but on that day, before this day, he picked up a piece of contaminated food. He ingested it, worms and all, and unbeknownst to him on that day or anyone attending him, except for God himself, Herod set off hurtling towards this destiny of this place, this day, this time, this event, to defy God to his face and for the last worm to reach its destination at that moment and for this man who is being celebrated to crumple in an agonizing death. Behold the power of a sovereign God. God ordained this. Now friends, I want to be clear that what we're not saying is that God took advantage of an awkward situation and he used it for his glory. Like God doesn't really control what's happening, but when he sees something in a fallen world that he can use, well, then he jumps on that thing and he kind of works that together for the means towards the end which he's trying to achieve. Like, he has nothing to do with roundworms and he has nothing to do with parasites, but, but when that situation arises, when you have the lemons of parasites in a fallen world, well, then God makes the lemonade of striking Herod down in judgment. He's, he's just using what's already happening to accomplish his purposes. That's not providence That's ingenuity. That's not sovereignty. That's resourcefulness. You're thinking like a human being. Like you and I, we're resourceful people. We're not sovereign people. We're resourceful people. We take elements in the world that we can't really control and and we can use them and bend them and move them to create things that can be beautiful or that can be terrible because we are resourceful. God is not resourceful. God is sovereign. What God wills and what God does, He always and ever achieves. You're going to get tired of hearing the word roundworm. I'm tired of saying it. But hear me, church. If a single roundworm is outside God's sovereign control, we don't have Herod's death this day. If a single roundworm wakes up and says, I'm not laying 200,000 eggs today. I did that yesterday. I'm going to do that tomorrow. But I'm taking a break today. Then God's plan falls apart and we don't have Herod's death this day. But God's plans for the world and for us do not stand or fall on the whims of roundworms. Amen? He's not waiting to see what they will do when we say God works all things together for the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11, take it, read it, memorize it, study that passage. We mean kings and nations are in his hands and we mean that microscopic parasites are in his hands and that together he orchestrates the events of this cosmos to accomplish everything exactly what he set out to do. God is sovereign over all things. Now we see that today in judgment against Herod. We're going to walk into the heartbreak of that two weeks from now in the death of a young believer who was one of Jesus's dearest friends, James. But either way, if you're hearing for the first time or thinking for the first time this morning this much about God's sovereignty over creation, and especially as it relates to death, and especially as it relates to my death, this can be unsettling to talk about. This is a bit unnerving and unmooring, and it can cause us, I hope, to ask a lot more questions behind it. But I want to leave us with this gospel promise from Acts chapter 17. I want you to flip there in your Bibles. It's just a couple of pages later that talks about this kind of God who's orchestrating these kind of things. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. This is what Paul is preaching. He says, "...the God who made the world and everything in it," and then look down to the second half of verse 25, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's all God. He gives it all. Here's his providence. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all over the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. You were born in this century, in this household, arriving in this city, showing up in this place this morning, because of God's sovereignty, and why does he care to do that? Here's his purpose in the very next line. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. When I learned that God holds all events, even death, in his hands, I would be unnerved if I suspected that this same God wasn't good and he wasn't for me. But I tell you from the Gospel, and I tell you from this account in Acts, that God is orchestrating these things to draw you to himself, to know him, to trust in him, to be united with him, to enjoy him in happy worship, That is the reason God has created the world to reflect his glory in this place. Run to him, find him, rejoice in him because he orchestrates the world for this very purpose. Let's pray together. God, every single one of us suffers a small view of you and a small view of you in the world, and a small view of how you orchestrate and ordain all things. Forgive us, Lord, for these small saviors. If your sovereignty appears real to us, if our death appears real to us, then the victory of Jesus, your victory in your Son, will appear all the more bright and glorious to us. Do that in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.